0: criminals exist. Start with the warped and wicked Charles Manson. It's everything that human beings are, don't understand, it's all their fears, it's what they're not sure of. You dig know what I'm saying? Satan to me would be God. Well the demented son of Sam Killer David Merkel. These and others. Purportedly linked to the devil worship underground. It's all over the United States and probably all over the world because it's just something that people Impossible to measure. Easy to doubt. The very mention of it invites ridicule. Come out. I won't let her go. No. Often the choice is to avoid confronting. Ignore it. Find other explanations. Or laugh it off. That is not the choice we have made tonight. We have chosen to ask why. Via satellite, we'll be asking the youngest person on Oklahoma's death row, just 17 when he killed in the name of Satan, why he murdered his own parents. And to Southern California, where we will ask the parents of children in the notorious McMartin Preschool why they claim their kids were satanically abused. And to London, where rock star Ozzy Osbourne will tell us why he feels he, and heavy metal music, penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana, to ask convicted killer Charles Gervais why he thought the devil would award him 10,000 souls. The Investigative News Group presents the Geraldo Rivera Special.
1: This is a midweek episode. You got me, Brandon. Um, I'm going to go down, if you didn't catch, from the the opener there. That was from the Geraldo Rivera's um, infamous uh, Satanic Underground episode um, that a lot of people believe um, was near the peak of the Satanic Panic. Um, a lot of people really feel like the Satanic Panic really was only in the 80s and 90s and stuff like that, but... In all reality, from a lot of things that I've read and a lot of things I've looked at, really the satanic panic has been there forever. Um, It just hit its peak during that time because of media, really. Uh, Media came by and made us believe, um, and made people believe that we we needed to worry about Satanists. Um, Yeah, so they gave us an enemy that we could all get behind, and so many people jumped on the, the bandwagon, and you'd be surprised at some of the things that they came up with. So I'm going to get through as much as I can with this. Um, This may end up uh, a two-part episode, but we'll see. Um, Because there is so much in this. Um, This is a lot more than I expected. Um, I may end up doing like a Satanic Panic this one and then maybe another episode on just Satanism. Um, Because Satanism is a whole other thing that a lot of people don't understand. Um, I'll mention it a little bit, Anton LaVey um, and all his his Satanist books and all that kind of stuff where a lot of people really don't realize. I own the, Satan, the uh, Satanic Bible, um, and I've read it. Um, not because I'm a Satanist, not because of anything like that, just because of for research. I wanted to understand it. Um, and in reading it, the one thing you find that really Anton LaVey's idea of Satanism is really a—it's an, an anti-religion. It's a religion that's anti-religion, really. Um, it's talking about how religion basically... The idea of good and evil and all of that kind of stuff and, and all that, it just basically kind of pushes toward a hedonistic kind of lifestyle. Um, where most of the stuff that Anton base say, most Christians and Catholics would actually agree with. Um, except for the fact that they don't believe in Satan or God at all, really. Um, it's just more of a hedonistic lifestyle where you do things to, you know, basically be nice and be good to people and, and you know, make yourself happy. But I might go more into that later. um, But mainly, I'm going to focus on the Satanic Panic and how it really took over in the 1980s. So, um, one of the things I'm going to start with is a thing I got from uh, a website called Mental Floss, which is kind of one of those cheesy, um, you know, grab websites where it just kind of gets you with the, the the headline grab. But it had some interesting like list of of different things. So. You know, basically, a lot of us really know the the '70s with films like The Exorcist, The Omen, um, Amityville. Um, a lot of those movies that really showed, you know, Satanism, and brought it more towards the light, or not? I guess the light isn't the right word, but more towards, you know, the forefront of people's minds made them really start looking a lot more at these Satanistic things that we could be seeing. So, uh, one of the the funny ones here's some interesting. I'm going to start with some funny ones. into Satanist that weren't. So, one of the big ones, um, Thundercats and the Smurfs, were both Satanistic. So, in 1986, author Philip, Philip, Phil Phillips published Terminal in the Toy Box, a book detailing how *Master of the universe and other popular cartoons of the era were endorsing pagan practices through coaxial cable. With Pastor Gary Greenwald, Phillips also shot a video that elaborated on his theories. The question is, is there a well-organized plot, an insidious, insidious design right now, Program and influence the minds of our children toward the occult and witchcraft. Greenwood asked. It was rhetorical, as the two explained that the Thundercats were inspired by heathen gods, that ET died and was resurrected again, which I'm fine with. That ET's a creepy little bastard, Um, and could therefore be confused with Christian figures, and that there are things we need to look at concerning the Smurfs, because the characters are blue with black lips. They were depictive of dead creatures collectively Saturday morning cartoons would teach children to get into spells and witchcraft. The two concluded their video essay by pointing out that Rainbow Bright had a pentagram on her cheek. Wow. And that's the thing. And that's one thing we'll find as we go through a lot of this where a lot of the satanic panic really came from people finding what they wanted to find. Um, yeah. So, uh, Judas Priest, in December 1985, 18-year-old Raymond Belt Belknap and 20-year-old James Vance ended a long night of drinking by committing to a suicide pact. Belknap shot and killed himself. Vance attempted to do the same, but wound wound up, sorry, surviving with grievous and permanent disfiguring injuries from a shotgun blast. Both men had been fans of the rock band Judas Priest, who had been reputed to have recorded subliminal messages in their music. Uh, Vance's parents decided to sue the band and CBS Records for 6.2 mil in damages. Alleging phrases like, Do it and let's be dead were being delivered to Vance's subconscious. When the case went to a civil trial in 1990, audio engineers played the group's music backwards and forward at varying speeds and attempted to discern whether or not there were any hidden urges, urgings for listeners to kill themselves. Ultimately, a job ruled there were no messages in the music. Speaking to Rolling Stone in 2015, lead singer Rob Halford expressed both relief and disappointment in the tragic circumstances judge found in favor about the so-called subliminal messages, having the power to physically manifest themselves and make people do something. The ramifications of that would have been extraordinary, he said. How do you prove to somebody that there are not subliminal messages on your record when you can't hear them in the first place? So that is a big one that came down in the 80s. This this was a case of some other ones um, where a lot of people felt that there were subliminal messages. Part of that started, too, from... Charles Manson, who said that uh, the White Album by the Beatles had some subliminal messages. I mean, honestly, for me, and I know a lot of people think this is going to be a horrible statement, but I think that would be about the only reason to listen to the White Album. Um, I'm not a Beatles fan, so anybody who listens to the show would already know that. Uh, I am not a big Beatles fan, but uh, yeah, he thought that, you know, Helter Skelter, a lot of people don't realize, was a Beatles song. So, um, The Dungeon Master was another one introduced in 1974, Dungeons & Dragons quickly captured the imaginations of gamers who relished the opportunity to take on different guises and fantasy settings and almost immediately f- and almost immediately, found themselves embroiled in controversies over the game's sorcery and occult elements. That story reached new levels with the 1979 disappearance of James Egbert, a 16-year-old computer science student who was to believed to have gotten lost in the underground steam tunnels near Michigan State University. The media quickly jumped on the theory that Egbert had become too absorbed in his role-playing and suffered a mental breakdown. The truth was less sinister, though just as tragic. Egbert had been suffering from the demands of being a child prodigy, as well as shame over his homosexuality, prompting him to run away from school. He committed suicide in 1980, a fictionalized account of the cases. Mazes and Monsters was made for television in 1982 and starred Tom Hanks. All the negative publicity, one mother formed a group called B.A.D. for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, while creator Gary Gygax. Hired a bodyguard after receiving death threats. It was free advertising for the games publisher? TSR D D sold sixteen million in rule books in nineteen eighty-two alone. And that's not the only time that D and D is blamed. Um, if you go through even more some of the other research I've done, um there is another gentleman named Sean. Oh, where did my notes go? Got so many notes. This was a big one. Like I said, this might end up being two because I, I've got like seven pages of notes here. Sean Sellers, who while playing Dungeons & Dragons, he was the 17-year-old um, that was on Death Row that was mentioned in the in the, the intro um, that was believed to be a, de- a devil worshiper, a Satan worshiper, and uh, Dungeons & Dragons that started with Dungeons & Dragons, um, which is just so insane. I mean, I don't know how many of you I play Dungeons & Dragons. I loved it. I loved Dungeons and Dragons. I got to be somebody else for a bit. It's just like reading a book. I know most people now don't do that, but I still I have a huge library downstairs um, of books. Um, I loved reading books because you get lost in it. And that was the whole idea of Dungeons and Dragons. Not to worship the devil or anything like that, which, but whatever. You want to worship the devil? I don't care. A lot of Catholics and Christians kill people, too. You ever hear of the Crusades? Um, so, Pampers. In 1885, Procter & Gamble found itself in the unusual position of having to hold a press conference to deny that they were funding a satanic church. Since 1982, the company had been the target of anonymous accusations, claiming their logo, a man in the moon surrounded by 13 stars, was secretly the mark of the devil. So many calls poured in the distributor of ivory soap, Pampers diapers, and other household toiletries that they were forced to set up a toll-free number to refute allegations that they were beholden to the church of Satan. As for the stars, when the company was formed in 1882, they were intended to represent the original 13 colonies. The rumors ultimately prompted po- Procter & Gamble to remove the symbol from its packaging. Procter & Gamble, they were calling it the Satan's soap or Satan's shampoo. It just goes to show how quickly someone can see imagery And it's like with the sounds, how people can hear sounds that they want to hear, that they're told to hear, imagery that they're told to see. Um, There's a video you can find on YouTube, and it's been completely debunked and everything else, but whatever, that talks about monster basically being the the drink of the beast. And if you do so many different things, and if you turn it this way and shove it up your butt and do all this crazy shit, all of a sudden it's going to tell you that it's 666, and you're going to suddenly turn into Satan. There are so many crazy things that they have with this stuff where they sit there and believe. That this stuff is so true. Um, McMartin preschool scandal, we'll go into that one big time um, here in a bit. So I'm not going to go deep into that one, but that is one of the big, the big ones um, from the Satanic Panic. Uh, Mr. Ed um, was a solely, it was a pop culture. <sighs> Mr. Ed was great. I mean, if you didn't watch Mr. Ed, 60 sitcoms about a talking horse and it opened with the title song, A Horse is a Horse. Um, But played backwards, a preacher insisted one could hear sinister undertones like the source is Satan and someone heard this song from Satan. Uh, The discovery was mentioned during a seminar for teenagers on the moral evaporation caused by rock music. The teens then burned 300 popular albums in a pyre. You know how much those albums are probably worth? So, yeah, so they actually believed that Mr. Ed, I mean, I guess a talking horse, you know, would be, I mean, if it's one of those things like that, what, I can't remember what movie it was, that great movie with Bobcat Goldthwait, where he said the only reason he moved his lips was was because the stagehand was starting to tear it up his ass, but, I mean, Mr. Ed was satanic, in the song, he was singing about Satan, that's insanity, um, child sacrifice on Halloween, in 1989, parents in North Carolina were, send their children out for Halloween candy on the heels of rumors that Satanists planned to abduct and murder them in ritual sacrifice more than 500 calls flooded area police stations and rally after word spread that blonde boys from the ages of 2 to 5 were the devil worshippers preferred targets mothers indicated they were considering dyeing their son's hair to avoid a catastrophe police never found evidence of the plot wow blonde boys from age 2 to 5 it goes back to dyeing their hair. I mean, same thing happened with the son, you know son of Sam and uh, some of the other ones where they, they uh, it's not really son of Sam. Sorry, I'm thinking of uh, oh, my brain just went dead. Um, I've been researching this so much, I'm not thinking of the son of Sam's in my brain because he's part of this whole occult thing. Um, but yeah, but it's with other serial killers, where they preferred a certain type, so people started bleaching their hair or not bleaching, dyeing their hair, doing other things to hide who they were, so they wouldn't be a target. So, I mean, yeah, wow. I mean, in North Carolina, I mean, I can see it. I've been there. The Geraldo incident, which is what we just played. We, we At the very beginning, we played the intro to that. Um, and that was at the height of Titanic hysteria in 1988. Broadcaster, journalist, Geraldo Rivera, which if you've never seen Geraldo, um, go back and watch some of his shit. He's hilarious. Um, he was all sorts of stuff. I mean, he had all sorts of special things, all sorts of things that he did did a huge thing where he opened Al Capone's vault, and it was live on TV, and it was supposed to be this huge reveal, and there was nothing in there, so it was kind of funny, um, but yeah, he did a uh, two-hour special for NBC that supported the detail that lurid mission, the, the lurid mission of the devil worshippers, uh, devil worshipers p- exposing Satan's underground, po- posited that a secret cabal of Satanists numbering in excess of 1 million were responsible for messages in heavy metal and inspiring the behavior of cult leaders like Charles Manchin. The majority of them are linked in a highly organized very secretive network, we are intoned from small towns to large cities. They have attracted police and FBI atten- attention to their satanic ritual, child abuse, child pornography and grisly satanic murders. The odds are that this is happening in your town. Special Air prime po- Primetime Dollar ratings grabbing attention of nearly twenty million homes. Although advertisers were reluctant reluctant to buy commercial spots, while Revere presented a compelling case for concern, the mass media took care to know that the special didn't come from NBC's news programmers. It was a product of the network's entertainment division. But here's the thing, even though they say that, this is part of our entertainment division. Uh, how many people do you think bought into this shit? I mean, that is the hard part that you run into and you see with media. The media portrayed, you know, and we'll really get into the satanic panic and how it, it, it's, it really pushed and was pushed by the media. Um, you know, they, they call this basically a, a, a moral panic. And this moral panic is almost always pressed by the media. It is always pushed by the media. We talked about the, the Salem Witch Trials a while back. And in the Salem w- Witch Trials, it was the same thing. People sort of put... Spreading rumors, people didn't want to be in trouble. People saw that you know how much attention these people were getting, everything else, and they wanted the attention, even if it was bad. And they wanted to get at other people. So hey, you know what's the best way? Someone's pissed me off. Hey, they're a Satanist. Go after them. And this started little things like the Salem witch trial all over the United States. This happened everywhere. Even in small little towns, small little towns especially. Um, one of the biggest ones was in right here in you know my home state, Wenatchee, Washington, where there's a huge, huge issue where a gentleman who was um, Bob Perez, he was a detective in Wenatchee, Washington. Um, he let a Huge, infamous sex abuse investigation and arrest in the, in the 90s. Um, he was the city's sex crimes investigator. Perez arrested dozens of Rancho Valley adults between 1994 and 1995 on suspicion of sexually abusing children, sometimes in a bizarre ritualistic fashion. His investigation in tandem with state child protective services agents ultimately ensnared 42 Chelan and Douglas County residents, 28 of whom were convicted or pled guilty. But of the the cases that ended in convictions or guilty pleas, 18 were thrown out or overturned on appeal after Perez's tactics were investigated by a specially appointed appellate judge. The investigation found that Perez coerced suspects, many of them poor and developmentally disabled, into making false confessions and coached testimony from witnesses, which we find a lot in these kind of cases. Two key victims, Donna and Melinda Everett, were in Perez's foster care at the time. Both later recanted their claims of sexual abuse at the hands of parents and multiple acquaintances. This... I mean, this was... Donna was 10 years old and was his... Bob's, you know, foster daughter. And on March 13, 1995, uh, she basically said there was an underground sex ring. So, there was... She pointed out... He basically drove around with her and had her point out where all these houses were that she was supposedly abducted or uh, abused... Um, and she pointed out 22 homes including a pentecostal church and he named the group the circle so if you ever heard of the circle this is where it all started he called them the circle this was the which and here's the problem and here is one of my biggest issues with this with cases like this where he basically went through and made it look anytime someone comes back with something like this this is going to be where everyone has a problem when it's proven that he screwed up and he, you know, coached the witnesses and he did all this and that it was proven that most of what he accused them of was complete and utterly false. The next time we have an actual ring or the real circle pops up and there is an actual child sex ring, people are going to look back to this and go, look, oh, it's just another situation like happened in Wenatchee, nineteen ninety. And unfortunately, these situations happen all over the country. So, after this happened, um, the case were criticized by judge and legal advocates at both the state and federal levels. Defendants sued municipalities, police officers, and their own former lawyers, winning millions in settlements. Changes resulted in state law regarding foster care, sex abuse investigation, and mental health institutionalization involving children. If I were an escalator investigator charged with investigating the cases today, I'd do it exactly the same way, Perez said in 2004. He sees no problem with what he did. And that is where the problem comes in. Because basically what he did is he went in with, you know, we've said it quite often, where you have, he went into this investigation with an idea already in, in mind. He already had his outcome. He just needed to find evidence to prove his outcome so he didn't look at anything else there's any evidence that showed that what he was looking at was incorrect he ignored it he just went straight in and said okay well these people are child molesters because you know Donna says so and didn't ignore any facts that they might not have been when it came down to later Donna was wrong and Donna even recanted it so I mean it has multiple problems one a lot of innocent people got caught up in this lost their livelihoods People started looking at them differently, changed everything in these innocent people's lives. But it also comes back to the fact that once you do this, it becomes a boy-cried-wolf situation. So what happens next time? It's harder to believe someone next time because they've already proven that you coerced and did everything this time. How am I supposed to, you know, people are going to look at it later, and that's where the problem runs into. That's where you run into, you know, people making the wrong assumptions on these things because of people like him. So, Perez was heavily criticized for the disaster, but Whitman County Judge Wallace Frile, who investigated the cases, said blame could be shared throughout the Wenatchee Valley legal system. There's got to be vigilance among the judiciary, prosecutors, and defense attorneys to make sure these cases are properly investigated. He told the Wenatchee World in 2004, there were cases where the attorneys simply didn't ask the appropriate questions. Perez, Perez suffered severe depression after the investigations concluded. Psychologist Jim Goodwin later testified. Waterville resident retired from the police force in 1997. Um, he died well, I think this is from 2014 or maybe 2010 somewhere around there. Because um, this just died Thursday and I'm not seeing the date it came out. Um, I think Bob served his community as a cop to the best of his abilities, said Mike Mag- Magnotti, a former Wenatchee police sergeant who worked the sex crimes beat prior to Perez. The city of Wenatchee's insurers have paid a total of 4000 or sorry, four million, one hundred three thousand nine hundred fifty-one dollars and twenty-nine cents to settle claims brought to brought by former defendants in the investigation, according to the Association of Washington Cities. The last civil lawsuit against the city was settled in two thousand nine, awarding one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Um, and that's <sighs> that's the insanity of this. Okay, so this was two thousand thirteen. So he died in December of two thousand thirteen. Um, but that's the insanity this guy came in, he had a, you know a bias, and basically he went with confirmation bias, which is a big thing that you hear a lot um, and it's it's a word that's become a big part of my, my vocabulary now because of all this kind of stuff, where we investigate these things and you see so many cases like this where the confirmation, it, the, the bias is, this happened so that's all the, the investigators see is, this is what I want, I want this to be proven correct um and that's what he went into this with. And, you know, it came back with that huge sex ring. So there was a lot in this one, too, which just talks about a little bit of it. But, I mean, a lot of it came down to, you know, him. She said that these people wore robes and did all these crazy things to her and everything else. Um, and that's where it all started. So that's just and because of the satanic panic that happened all over the United States. It wasn't just one incident here. John Sellers, that was one I mentioned earlier um, He is He's the gentleman Who played D&D And ended up, you know, being In the Oklahoma jails So, sorry my my. There we go My, I was having problems bringing up my notes So So here's the one with this one They talk about childhood, childhood trauma And obsession for dark games And Satanism caused one to commit murder Sean Sellers was a 16-year-old who murdered three individuals. Born in 1969, Sellers was born to 16-year-old mother Vonda in California. His father was a very unstable alcoholic. His mother Vonda would divorce his father when he was around four. He uh, went on to marry Paul Belaf. It's an interesting name, Belafato. Belafato. Don't know how to pronounce that right. a B e l o f a t t o. A cross-country truck driver. His mother Vonda would even, often leave Sean with relatives they were not traveling Sean would live with his mother Vonda and stepfather Paul Sean had very little stability as he had moved almost 30 times most would say Sean was very isolated as a child but a very intelligent child who did well academically as Sean got older he became more detached from reality so and that's one to look at too in this situation is there's a lot of childhood trauma to go along with that though close to his mother and stepfather when he was younger it was reported that there was violence within the household and oftentimes, Sean was humiliated. Sean's mother, Vonda, was very abusive to Sean, and at times his grandfather was abusive as well. At one point, Sean had stayed with an uncle who would make him wear diapers at the age of 12 and 13 because he wet the bed. At other times, he was forced to wear the solid diaper on his head all day if he wet the bed more than one night. Um, abuse and violence were very much part of Sean's childhood. His mother and stepfather carried guns everywhere they went. In an early age, he was taught to hunt. During one hunting trip, his uncle tried to have Sean step on an animal legs and kill it. Disturbing. I don't know why they point out that they all carried guns. There's nothing wrong with carrying a gun. Uh, frequently throughout his childhood, he was called a wimp and taunted for not taking part in the violent acts that took place within the family. So, around the age of six, and this is where it gets interesting. And this is where it, what kills me. You know, and one of the reasons why I really put this in my notes is um, a lot of people really point out that, you know he was into Dungeons and Dragons, he was into the occult, he was into all that. But, they skipped this part. Around the age of six, Sean began hearing voices. The voices in his head would criticize him. At this age, he believed that everyone heard voices in their heads. As he got older, paranoia set in and other odd behaviors, such as brushing the rug in one direction to see if someone had entered his room while he was out and adding threads to doors so no one could enter. Those are paranoid shows some, like, you know, attributes of possible schizophrenia and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know. But, of course, everyone only focuses on the occult and the D&D side. By the time Sean was a teenager, he had extreme mood swings and became obsessed with the concept of good and evil and God and Satan. By 15, he was addicted to the game Dungeons & Dragons. Um, Dungeons & Dragons, like we said, if you don't know, is a role-playing game that allows each player to create a character to play. The characters have imaginary adventures within a settings. By 16 years immersed into satanism and practicing satanic rituals daily using and storing vials of his own blood in his household refrigerator and at times take it to school to drink it. This is one of those things that this is a single person who did this. Most actual satanic rituals or whatever that you find I have not found much that really points to actual cults and people doing these kind of satanic rituals besides small pots no organized, as far as I can find anyway. no organized satanic religion that promotes and has these satanic rituals. I can't go and find these satanic rituals on a book somewhere. Which, of course, it's a secret religion. That's why. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, if you can find those things, send them to me. I would love to read them. Um, Sean turned to self-mutilation mutil- and would stab sharp objects into his scalp. Um, as times went on, Sean began to become involved in amphetamines to stay awake for long periods of time. This assisted him to perform his satanic rituals. He often dreamed of killing people or mutilating them while he's sleeping. Uh, the more he had these thoughts, the more they turned to killing his parents. And that's another thing you got to look at the mental, the mental break in him. This isn't D This isn't occult. There's something mentally wrong, something psychologically wrong that needs to be taken care of. The D and and the occult is an out. Everyone that plays D&D and is into the occult is going to become a psychopathic killer. And not every psychopathic killer is into the occult or D&D. It's kind of one of those things. Um, On September 8, 1985, Sean Sellers went to a Circle K convenience store with a friend Richard Howard in northwest Oklahoma City and shot the clerk, Robert Bauer, three times. Sean had told his friend Brent he just wanted to know how it felt to kill someone prior to the murder, the two teens were having conversations about murdering someone, and they had performed a satanic ritual, and Richard grabbed his grandfather's 357 revolver that had five shells loaded in it, and also grabbed twenty-two rifle belonging to his brother. Sean Seller and his friend were, neither one, were suspects in the murder of Robert Bauer until March 5th, 1986. After several days of no sleep, taking speed and smoking weed, he dressed solely in black underwear, quietly went into his parents' bedroom where they were sleeping, and shot them both in the head stepfather 43 year old Paul Balafato was shot first and his 32 year old mom Vonda though he shot his mother in the face as she had awoken this is one of the things like I said where you run into things like this and we'll mention in a minute you know son of Sam and you know all of those um, Richard Ramirez how um, you know, these ones are really focused on their occult and everything else and it's not the occult these people are sick people that used the occult and d and everything else as an excuse. Uh, many of Sean's friends and relatives were very shocked as Sean always seemed so courteous, was doing well in school and had love for comics and drawings. Both Sean Sellers and Richard Howard were both sentenced to death row for committing murder, despite, the course, discovering their mental illness. Had he proper treatment for what they later diagnosed as multiple personality disorder, he may have never committed those crimes. It wasn't until 1992 that he was diagnosed during the trial, Sean saw his claim that he was practicing Satanism at the time he committed the murders and stated he was possessed by the demon, Azeroth. There's a tale behind his demon's name, and it it's said that it is a human-turned-demon, more of a created demon. Sean stated this possession caused him to murder his parents and, and the convenience store victim. During the trial, his attorneys also argued that Sean had an addiction to the game Dungeons & Dragons for the pushing him to murder his victims jury never considered these claims, and Sean Sellers was found guilty of multiple murders. He was sentenced to death in 1986. Now, that's one of those ones that you got to look at, was that I think the whole idea of him being possessed by a demon and supposedly into D&D, that was more his lawyers trying to get him out of this. Um, Trying to get him, you know, blaming someone besides him. Making him the victim. Um, he was just a very disturbed person who had some mental disability mental illnesses that were not being taken care of or not being treated correctly. Um, that's what it comes down to. It doesn't come down to the fact that he played D anD D or any of that. His lawyers just wanted to, to to point that out, and later on, what you know, they did find that he he recanted and said that you know it had nothing to do with him playing D anD D. Just wanted to feel feel it. He wanted to see what it felt like to kill somebody. So he made some bad choices. and made some mistakes. Um, and it was real mental mental illness. I think was a problem. Not that he uh, not that he played video games or not video games. Sorry, my bad. That's later comes later in that one. Um, that he uh, played D D and played a game. It's a fantasy game. I used to play Robo Attack. You don't see me trying to fly a freaking robot through the sky. I mean, I would if I could. Some of the other things that really pushed the Satanic Panic. Uh, Mike Warnke, um, he was, he, he was an author, a comedian, and an evangelist. So he was known as America's number one Christian comedian. Mike Warnke um, sold in excess of one million records. June 29, 1988, was declared Mike Warnke Day by the Governor of Tennessee. Uh, the Satan Seller has, according to its author, sold 3 million copies in 20 years. His 1991 Schemes of Satan quickly climbed the bestseller list. Mike Warnke, um, his press material includes credits for appearances on the 700 Club, Oprah Winfrey Show, Larry King Live, Focus on the Family, and ABC's 2020. He um, has won numerous awards from the recording industry, including 1992 Grady Nutt, Humor Award. That sounds like an interesting award. Uh, he continues to, continues to perform two hundred live shows a year. So, I'm not sure when. Yeah, that was in 1992. He still was performing. Um, he had a ministry and public profile based on the story he tells of his previous involvement with Satanist So, as he wrote in the Satan Solid, the story goes: um, a young orphan. He was a young orphan boy raised in foster homes, drifted from whatever family and friends he had to join a secret, all-powerful satanic cult. First he descended into the hell of drug addiction. Then he ascended in the satanic ranks to the position of high priest with 1,500 followers in three cities. He had had limited wealth and power at his disposal provided by members of Satanism's highest echelon, the Illuminati. Of course, Illuminati freaking comes into this every time.
0: It's always an Illuminati.
1: And then, somehow, Once he did that, and this is one thing where he comes. Why I really mention him, he was another driving force in um, pushing the, you know, the, the idea of Satanism. So Mike Warnke's ministry and public profile are based upon the story he tells of his previous involvement with Satanism, as written in the Satan cell, the Story goes like this: like I said. So, a generation of Christians learns his, its basic concepts of Satanism and the occult from Mike Morkey's testimony in the Satan Cellar. Based on his alleged satanic experiences, Morky came to be recognized as a prominent authority on the occult, even advising law enforcement officers investigating occult crimes. We believe the Satan Cellar has been responsible more than any other single volume in the Christian market for promoting the current nationwide Satan. This guy is accredited with being part of the biggest driving force behind this. He had so many things where he basically posted, you know, not posted, but in his books and everything else, talked about his life as a Satanist, as as a Satanistic high priest and all this stuff that has been proven. Holy crap. a Satanistic high priest um, that he was, you know, ran, had all these followers and everything else. Um, So, yeah. So, through the years, there was a lot of people that questioned um, and felt that something wasn't right with Mike Warnke and what he said. So, there was a bunch of, a lot of people done a lot of investigations into his background um, and found many discrepancies that raised serious doubts about the trustworthiness of his testimony, um, it's been uncovered significant evidence contradicting his alleged satanic activity. His testimony contains major conflicts from book to book and tape to book. It contains significant internal problems, and it doesn't square with known external times and events. Further, we have documentation and eyewitness testimony that contradict the claims he has made about himself. There's plenty. Holy crap. My phone is just randomly. It's not even in my hand. Don't look at me like that, Beach. So there's a lot of things that sound like he, he didn't know what he was doing. Like he's full of shit. Um, so there's a bunch of evidence. Um, there's testimony from Mike's closest friends, relatives, and daily associates. People whose names Mike disguised or omitted entirely in his official testimony. These people knew the real Mike Warnke, who was not a drug fiend or a recruiter for Satanism, but that he's a storyteller. He's a comedian. That's what comedians do. They come up with stories. Born on November 1946 to Alfred Al Warnke and his wife Louise, Mike's parents lived in Evansville, Indiana, and according to their son's confirmation certificate, had Mike baptized at St. Anthony's Catholic Church. When he was five, the Warnkeys moved to Manchester, Tennessee. Gosh, my brain doesn't work. When he was five, they moved to Manchester, Tennessee, where Al opened up Warnke's truck stop. And soon became part of the local landscape. On January 15, 1955, Louise, and her, on her way home from town, lost control of the family's brand new Packard and was killed. She was 37. Mike was eight. Mike had other family too, from his father's previous marriage. His half sister Shirley uh, was 22 years old when um, 22 years older than he was. She first met Mike in 54 when Al brought his family to California on a visit. As Shirley recalls, Dad, Louise, and Michael came out to California in the mid 50s. Prior to that. So, uh, when she was working, they came to her office unexpectedly. He said he's her father, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, when Mike's mother was killed, Al flew Shirley to Tennessee for the funeral. During that visit, Al went to if she had her, and her husband, Keith, would move to Manchester and help run the truck stop. Uh, you always think, wouldn't it be neat to know your own dad? That was probably one of the biggest mistakes she ever made. So, there was a bunch of that, so it basically comes down to that if you do any research on this Mike Warnke who basically a lot of people base their beliefs on what satanic ritual is and everything else on Mike Warnke's books if you do any actual research into Mike Warnke's past you find out really quickly that he's full of shit and a lot of what he bases his stuff on isn't true there's so many holes in his story and everything else that it is fiction it is all where a lot of the satanic panic falls into play. Um, so, Mike Morky was one of the big ones that started this. Um, now, one of the big ones that comes into play is the McMartin preschool case. Um, this one is very disturbing because, and it's hard, it's tough because the big problem with this one is if any of it was true, even a tenth of it was true, it's horrible so easy to discredit so much of it. It's hard to tell if there was any basis for truth in it to begin with. So, McMartin Preschool Case. Um, In the 1980s, the McMartin Preschool trial dominated the media and caused widespread hysteria among parents. The case centered around a preschool in Southern California and the people who ran it. The allegations were of rampant sexual abuse at the hands of depraved daycare daycare workers and had parents all over the country worried their children might be experiencing similar horror. However, when the trial finally ended, there was no definitive proof a single child of preschool had been molested or forced to participate in satanic rituals, despite testimony from several children. The McMartin preschool case outcome caused people to second-guess memories and outrageous claims. Decades later, at least one of the children who made allegations publicly apologized, admitting they made up the claims to please adults. There are still conspiracy theorists who are convinced the teachers were satanists and child abusers, causing many people Martin Preschool so uh, there was a woman who alleged her young son had been sodomized by a preschool teacher it all began in 1983 Judy Johnson contacted police in Manhattan Beach California claiming her two year old son was sodomized by Ray Bucky one of the child's teachers at the McMartin Preschool Johnson said her young son was having painful bowel movements and she found blood in his diaper leading her to suspect sodomy Bucky was arrested and questioned about the allegations but he was released when officials failed to find any evidence corroborate Johnson's claims. However, Johnson was adamant that Bucky, as well as other teachers at the McMartin Preschool, had abused her son and his fellow students. So she sent a letter to the district attorney in the missive Johnson said Ray flew in the air on one of the teachers and one of the female teachers had drilled a a child under the arms and taken her son to meet a listen to that again, that Ray flew in the air, and one of the female teachers had drilled a child under the arms and taken her son to meet a goat man. Wow. After the district attorney received this document on September 8th, 1983, the police department sent a letter about the allegations to the family's approximately 200 current and former students. So they got this letter from this lady. Who said that Ray flew? He flew. And then a teacher drilled a child under the arm. What does that mean? What does drill. That's the one that gets me. I had to read it like four times. I'm like, is this a miss? But I found it in multiple places where they had that exact wording. She said that a female teacher drilled a child under the arms. What does that mean? Like taking a drill to their. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. you think there would be evidence of that. Probably. My mic is a lot louder than it should be. It is. So, yeah, and then she'd taken her, I mean, the, the goat man, whatever. I mean, it could just be someone that, you know, I mean, that could just be someone that looked like Charles Manson. Fuck you, goat man. <laughs> so, is the part that kills me. After the district attorney read this, he not only he took it and wrote a letter and sent it out to 200 current and former students' families about these allegations. Now all of a sudden it starts rolling in. So after parents received the letter of Bucky's arrest, police told them their children may have been witnesses or victims of acts that had allegedly occurred at the preschool including sodomy, oral sex, and fondling of genitals. The police department provided a form asking parents to disclose any inappropriate behavior. Hundreds of parents with children who were current or former students at McMartin Preschool contacted law enforcement. Initially, the children were interrogated by police officers, but eventually they were questioned by therapists and social workers after parents concluded the interviewing tactics used by the cops. 60 children, out of the 400 who had been interviewed, made allegations of abuse, which ranged from deeply disturbing to incredibly bizarre. Now here comes uh, here's where all the, some of this comes So initially the majority of the children told the staff of the Children's Institute a private therapy center they hadn't been molested so initially they said no, nope, never happened however after repeated questioning, most of the current and former students from the McMartin preschool described shocking and strange acts perpetrated by the school's staff according to the children, they were forced to participate in satanic rituals that included animal and human sacrifices and they were made to play a game called naked movie star involved posing nude for pictures. The children also told therapists they were raped, fondled, sodomized, and forced to take part in orgies. One child told the defense attorney that Chuck Norris, a popular action star at the time, had been present at the satanic rituals. They got Chuck into this. Chuck wouldn't be involved. He would have been whooping some ass and beating the crap out of those teachers for this. He would have protected the children. Chuck's a good guy. Um, while other children claimed they jumped out of a plane and even traveled to space in a hot air balloon. Other claims included digging up dead bodies, secret tunnels underneath the school, flying witches, and being locked to perpetrators. I think the only thing they did was acid. That's what it sounds like. I mean, that sounds like a very interesting um, acid trip. So a therapist coerced the children into making the false allegations is what a lot of people claim. So um, Many people, in retrospect, uh, believe many of the allegations were the result of coercive interview tactics by law enforcement and therapists, including Key McFarlane, an unlicensed therapist who worked at the Children's Institute. McFarlane, who routinely used dolls and puppets to communicate with the children, interviewed a five-year-old child who adamantly denied ever being abused by Bucky. In response to his denials, McFarlane told the boy, you're just a scaredy when another child said he hadn't been molested by Bucky McFarlane via puppet asked the boy well what good are you she also said to the child you must be dumb critics have argued these types of interviewing tactics are likely to cause children to make allegations simply to please the interviewer or so the questioning will end and that is one of the biggest problems with this case this is a case that really shows the confirmation bias in a lot of ways were these investigators, these therapists, wanted a certain answer. They did not get said answer. So they basically coerced and pushed these children until the children told them what they wanted to hear. Which is crap. Whew. So seven teachers from the school. Virginia McMartin, Ray Bucky, Peggy M- McMartin-Bucky, Peggy and Bucky, Mary Ann Jackson... Babette Spittler and Betty Rader were charged with more than 100 counts of child abuse. Following nearly two years of preliminary hearings, the charges against all but two of the teachers were dropped due to lack of evidence. Ray Buckey and his mother, Peggy Martin Buckey, were still faced trial. The trial finally began in 1987, and three years later, on January 18, 1990, a jury acquitted the defendants on 52 counts. However, the jurors were unable to agree on a verdict for 13 other charges. They said they felt as though some of the allegations were true but the prosecution hadn't provided enough evidence to warrant convictions. Later that year, Ray Buckey was retried for eight counts, but the judge for the second trial declared a mistrial when the jury was unable to agree on his guilt or innocence. The two trials cost an estimated $15 million, and it took approximately seven years of court time. The McMartin preschool trial is the longest and one of the most expensive trials in American history. here's where the bad part comes in and why this became such a huge thing. The press never questioned it. After Ray Becky, Bucky's second trial ended in a mistrial, David Shaw, writer for the Los Angeles Times, wrote a four-part series of articles about the McMartin preschool case and the way it was covered by the media. The series of articles, which Shaw won a Pulitzer Prize for in 1991, examined how the press, including the Los Angeles Times, failed to actually investigate the allegations made by the children of Christ Consequently, members of the public didn't question the allegations made by the children, even though many of them were outrageous and coerced by therapists. There's some of this. If you really deep dive into the McMartin um, preschool, um, this is one of the huge ones from the Satanic Panic, where they really talk about how this coercion really happened, how it worked. Some of these allegations the kid ma- kids made was um, things of being able to travel under, you know, to the underground through the toilet, that basically you stood in the toilet and they flushed you down it how you travel to the, the, the tunnels underneath um, the the preschool. Um, there's so many allegations and so many things in here that a little bit of research by, you know, the news media would have probably made this go away quickly. But because they did nothing and just said, nope, this is it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's insane. So, and that that's just part of it. Uh, the allegations made against the staff at McMartin Preschool were part of a larger phenomenon commonly referred to as the Satanic Panic, like we've been talking about. Um,
0: yeah, it's all insane.
1: So, some of the staff did win a, a civil trial in 1991. Virginia McMartin, the founder of the preschool, her daughter Peggy McMartin Bucky, and her granddaughter Peggy Ann Bucky, who all worked at the McMartin Preschool, filed a civil lawsuit against Robert Curry. Curry, whose child had attended the preschool, slanted the three women when he appeared on national television, saying that he. That they had participated in lewd activities and satanic rituals in the Manhattan Beach School. Each woman sought a minimum of five hundred thousand dollars in punitive damages, and while the judge found Curry guilty of slander, he awarded each one each of the former teachers one dollar. According to the judge, the women failed to prove Curry's statements had damaged their reputation, or that Curry had intended to cause them distress when he made these allegations. One of the accusers made a public apology. Decades later, in 2005, more two decades after the McGuire preschool case, began one of the children who made allegations about satanic rituals and child molestation publicly apologized for making false accusations. That child, Kyle Zapullo, said he's not even sure Ray Bucky worked at the preschool when he was a student there. And he had only positive memories of his time at the school. Initially, he denied ever being touched by Bucky, but the therapist interviewing him replied, Oh, we know these things happen to you. After spending hours at the Children's Institute while he and his siblings were interviewed and examined, he decided the only way he could leave was if he told the therapist what he thought they wanted to hear. Zipolo said helping the police keep the accused behind bars made him feel special and important, which is why he made up stories about abuse and satanic rituals. And, here's the worst part. Many people who have never researched this still believe the that is, like I said, where my biggest issue comes into this. Is it possible that some of those allegations are true? Yes, it is very possible. Unfortunately, it is. But this is where the problem comes in. When the police do lack of, you know, uh, the police and the therapists come up with these insane ideas and they press these insane things and actually take them to court with these insane ideas, it makes it so none of the ones that might be true are believable like I said earlier, the boy who cried wolf. You say enough, eventually nothing you say is credible. We see it how many times. It's one of my biggest problems with Alex Jones. You look at Alex Jones, and he has so many times where he's close to right, and then all of a sudden he goes off on some fucking wild tangent, and then you're like, oh, well, that guy's an idiot, so obviously nothing he says is true. And that's where you run into with these cases, where all of a sudden, because they pushed so hard and made these kids say things that were so outrageous, but they still ran with them. That it's hard to, hard to go back and look and say, okay, well, this is obviously completely insane, but this might have been true. Um, and there's things that you can find where you can find things that the child having, you know, dietary issues can make it so the, the thi- child had bowel uh, problems with bowel movements and blood. But sodomy also is another answer, which it could have happened. Could have, but all the other stuff compounded on top of it makes it so it's hard to believe any of it. Um, and that's one of my biggest problems with this one. Um, there's so much more to the Satanic Panic. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go more into it. This is gonna have to be a two-parter because we're almost at an hour, um, and I have so much more I could talk about. Um, the hard part with me on this too is right now it really shows today's. It shows in today's society how quickly the media can spin something without any research. Look what's happening right now with um, all the the issues with COVID, all the issues with, you know, the media right now pushing its agenda, pushing everyone, you know, the agenda that they want to push. Our government pushing the agenda that they want to push. And that is where the big problem you run into is so many people are stuck. Even when you can prove to them what you're saying is insane they still want to keep going with it. And that's you know, what happened here with the McMartin you know Preschool, is they had an idea once it was in their head, this is what happened. They did everything they could and they got the confirmation bias and that's what we're stuck into in our world right now is the media and the propaganda has pushed people to believe so much bullshit that at this point, they're so bought in that they can't back out. And that's kind of what happened I think on the McMartin. They got so bought say these things that they shouldn't, and, you know, they really should have done more research before they sent out those letters. Um, It really goes to show that many people have shown that initially almost every single kid said no, nothing ever happened. But then when pushed, 360 out of 400 came back and said yes. But think about that. Think about this. We've talked about some of the stuff before, about the mind experiments and stuff like that convince people to believe what you want them to believe. You push them hard enough, you get another friend in there going yeah, uh, you know, he touched me in my no-no spot. And all of a sudden oh yeah, yeah, he touched me too. And that's what happens. You get the therapist where they even admitted that the therapist would look at them and say, they'd be like, yeah, no, I wasn't touched. And like, yeah, we know you were touched. You just need to tell us the truth. We know you were touched. And eventually they'd just say, okay, yep, I was touched. So that they could go home. this episode came more kind of about some of those crazy things that ended up coming out of the satanic panic. I didn't go deep into what it really was or how it started, but I, like I said, this is going to end up being a two-parter and when I come back on my my next, so not next Wednesday, but the next one, so in two weeks, I will come back and I will, and I will go down what the satanic panic is um, and talk about it more in depth, how it started, how, you know, everything else just remember, don't always believe. Just because the media is telling you, just because someone's telling you, someone in power, someone who whatever is sick it's so bad is it get it over with get the illness get it over with get done i'm pretty sure i had it but i ain't going to get tested because i don't want to know so thank you all for listening if you have any questions you can find me mr underscore b underscore six 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 on instagram you can email us at nwcz sorry that's not right down the rh Find us wherever you can find podcasts. You can find us on the Fringe Network, um, NWCZ Radio, Channel 1, on Sunday Sunday nights at 8. Um, I hope you're enjoying me and Big D are trying to find the best way to be able to record from a distance um, together. And thank you all for listening. Like I said, I'll be back in, in two weeks with more on the Satanic Panic. Think for yourselves. Do your own research.